And we move now across into Sweden, the largest of the Scandinavian countries. And although we're looking at streets, it's a country full of mountains, lakes and forests. And of course, it's full of blonde Vikings. And uh, this is one of the reasons why it's good for pictures. These are the ABBA group, born Frida, Anna, who's just beside her with the long blonde hair, and Benny. Uh, if you can work that out, that's why they're called ABBA, because in fact it's Benny born Annie Fried and Anna. They made their first record in 1972, and uh, if all the judges were men, which they're not, I'm sure this group would get a lot of votes. You'll see why in a minute. The song is called... Oh, and it's Napoleon! Napoleon, no wonder the song is called Waterloo. This is Sven Olaf Waldorf, who's really entered into the spirit of it all, dressed as Napoleon, waiting for Waterloo by ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my beloved friends of the podcast, 
as I begin podcast 172 entitled Phony Wars is a great moment in the history of pop music. And that is the um, debut uh, live performance by the Swedish group ABBA of Waterloo at the Eurovision Song Contest of 1974. And it um, embodies a theme lyrically of... uh, of truth versus fiction in relationships, that song. But first, I just want to bring my own experience into the um, crucible of that song. Uh, Mary and I were, um, when that song uh, was uh, overwhelmingly uh, um, caught the wave of European um, popularity, we happened to be in the middle of an evangelistic mission in the Church of England parish in Hounslow, Middlesex, to the west of London near Heathrow Airport at Holy Trinity Church. And it was a, a mission that anyone who was there or who knew about it uh, was um, quite blown away by the results of an extraordinary mission in an Anglican Catholic parish of the Church of England, which for many reasons seemed to have been ready for the group to arrive, and we were right in the thick of it. And on the Saturday night of the mission, we um, were uh, seconded to an event which had uh, an evangelistic meaning for us, but not for the um, people on the ground who came to a Saturday dance. And if you've seen English Angry Young Man movies from the 60s and even the late 50s, and if you've, uh, you know the world of Joe Meek, and if you've, uh, if you live there or just, just, just see any number of movies, or if you've seen um, Call the Midwife, the BBC documentary about life in the Docklands in the 50s, 50s, you'll know that there were these dances held almost always in Church of England uh, parish halls um, that were like community centers. The, the church was a community center, and on Saturday night, there would be a dance for young people, the comparable, comparable uh, um, the parallel is the dance at the uh, near the beginning of West Side Story in the Catholic Church. Oh, the Saturday night way to get kids together and to get them to sort of hopefully behave, but also to be boys and girls together at that age was to have a dance. And uh, Joe Goddard, the great lyricist of um, Joe Meek's early years, uh, wrote a song. You can YouTube it called Saturday Dance, and it's just wonderful. In any event, we happen to be at a Saturday dance in the spring of 1974. And at that dance, we were just amazed. It it felt like a sort of out of American graffiti. We were very young. We were not much older than the people who were there at the dance themselves. And it was jammed with luridly but uh, very uh, uh, carefully dressed um, uh, girls and young women who were there and coiffed guys who looked a little bit like Cliff Richard, you know, you might say at a certain time. And... um, or David Bowie, that's not quite the right vibe, but it was unbelievable. It, it was it was so, uh, it, was, it was like a ritual, as we always say. It had a little bit of Saturday Night Fever, although it was earlier than that. And there they all were dancing, and they were doing line dancing, you know, like those by the larks, you know. And I suddenly turned to Mary, and I said, what is that song? Because Waterloo, which had just swept the nation through the Eurovision contest on television, was being played, and everybody got up and started doing this incredibly active, frenetic line dancing to Waterloo. And it was obvious that this song was a touched the the greatest adolescent and every universal nerve. We just loved it, and we just turned that song. So I went right out and got the first uh, ABBA um, uh, vinyl, and we loved it. Now, the song, uh, and not only melodically and in terms of the great performers, Annie Frieda and Bjorn, etc., etc., but it captures something else. It, it, this, this is where we're coming. It captures something about the truth of life, because in the song, 
she is uh, uh, the girl who is decided to surrender. Just as Napoleon surrendered at Waterloo, she is surrendering to the guy. And she's decided to surrender to him, to his advances. And she says, I feel like I win when I lose. And you've heard the line. It repeats. And go listen to it again on YouTube right now. This is the original recording. I feel, by the way, there's a great German recording of it. Same group, just in a, a, a equally hot and in some ways even slightly more succinct version of Waterloo. But I feel like I win when I lose. Now that assertion is absolutely true to the way people are when they fall in love. Um, now, today, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about people losing. We don't want to talk about love is lost. Love has to be, in, uh, you know, I win. It's a win-win. Or I'm never going to, don't you get me to say I'm going to lose or lose my um, self in you. It's got to be, you know, I've got to keep myself while being with you. Now, that may sound good, and it certainly is good, but is it true? Well, have you been in love? I mean, you. Have you been in romantic love? You probably have. You almost definitely have been, regardless of the form it took or the age you were or the success you had. You have probably been in love. As a matter of fact, by the way, if Freud is right, you, 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 you came out in love. But be that as it may, you've probably been in love. And you know that when you lose yourself in the other person, you win. And what do you win? You win unity. You win union. You win oneness. You know, um, I'm so into you. I'm. Uh, you're my everything, girl. You're. You're my everything. Uh, you're. You're. You're my everything. And I become you, and you become me. And have you read Andrew Marvel? And have you read John Donne? And have you read um, even Emily Dickinson? Believe it or not, I feel like I win when I lose. Now I cited that song, which I think is a great song, as you know, because it's a truth. And phoniness says, oh, well, you have to keep your limits. You have to keep your boundaries. You have to keep yourself. Now, there's a truth in that. I know there's a truth in that. I've been around, too, and I know that this, it's possible to lose yourself too much or to lose yourself in such a way that you're, you're stomped on or you're, you're dumped on or you're walked on. We know about this, and, and we know about the sensitivity to somebody else calling the shots. I accept all that. I understand that. But I also want to say to people who can they get very, very uh, anxious <clears throat> about the loss of self, I want to say, but have you actually been in love? If you've really been in love, romantic love, uh, it's true that you feel like I win when I lose. Remember that song, Surrender by Cheap Trick? Well, I mean, there's a vibe there that's very, you know, he's trying to convince a girl of something, et cetera, et cetera. And there's another great song from the movie um, Shag about the Carolina Beach music, a wonderful movie with Zel by Zelda Baron. That is a fantastic movie. Surrender, surrender. I mean, there's something powerful about surrendering. So my point is the reality of romantic love involves surrender. And if you don't think that that, then I say, have, I question you. Have you been in love? And if you've really been in love, you wanted to give yourself away, male or female, bond or free. You wanted to give yourself away. And the truth of Abba is that it's simply the truth. And this cast is about reality as opposed to phoniness. And we live in an age now when ideology is such a factor and people are being told and brainwashed, as my friend um, uh, Arthur Waldron at Penn, he says, you know, uh, um, you, Paul, you don't realize he's a professor. He said, uh, when you and I were in college, everybody thought the same, but we weren't brainwashed to the same extent that freshmen. I mean, the moment they arrive at these universities, they're brainwashed and, and everybody thinks the same. Well, I'm not even commenting about that. All I know is that reality and ideology are often on a collision course and reality always wins. The only trouble is reality often wins sort of um, with regret 
or with uh, great losses that have preceded the dawning of the age of reality. So I now move to a quote from Petula Clark. Now, I live in a part of the country where many English people come. Central Florida is a highly sought-after site for people from England for, quote, obvious reasons, if you could see the weather here. If we were Los Angeles, if Los Angeles were near, they'd go there, but we're near. And many, many people here have, uh, from England, own houses or um, uh, are from England and own or rent houses, and we see them everywhere. And so the public's supermarkets, which surround us, almost always carry British newspapers, and they carry the Daily Mail, which is the popular, mainstream popular English newspaper. And in um, an issue of the Daily Mail that I got not so long ago, there was an article about Petula Clark. Now, Petula Clark, who you remember was the singer of such songs as Downtown and I Know a Place and uh, Don't Sleep in the Subway, Darling, Don't Sleep in the Pouring Rain, beautiful song. Um... Petula Clark was a great celebrity, and she still is in some ways. She was a child actress. She actually was in the movie um, I Know Where I'm Going, the Powell Pressburger film, which has thousands of uh, devotees who regard it almost religiously as the most important work of art that they they live around. But in any event, you see her in that movie as a little girl. She was a mainstream celebrity. Joe Meek recorded a couple of songs for Petula Clark. I mean, this is holy ground. She's recently 80, and she was interviewed, and she said some very interesting things about ideology versus truth in her life. And the uh, slant of the article in the Daily Mail, the interview, was that she had one great regret in life. And I want to read two quotes from this interview with Petula Clark that occurred in conjunction with her 80th birthday and uh, an album release in 2013. Petula Clark writes, said, quote, I wasn't a good mother because I was away so much. I tried hard to be the perfect mother, the perfect wife, and a great performer. I thought I could do it all, but it can't be done. Sorry, but it just can't. I had a good stab at it, but being a parent and married is a full-time job. She continues, It was okay when we could take our children with us, but it wasn't always possible. I was having to split myself between being a good mother and wife and a good performer. I thought I could do it. I thought I was superwoman. And it's not actually possible. Now, that quote, uh, has authority because she's 80 and because it's she speaking. She's allowed to speak, isn't she, about her own reality of her experience. And uh, when you read that quote, you say to yourself, my gosh, you know, that is that is contrary to what um, is being taught. That is contrary to what is being stated. I think it's certainly, it, it, I think it's true. But is it? Um, You'll have to think about that. But the fact is, um, she is witnessing to a truth of her actual experience that is contrary to what she is supposed to have said. She is supposed to have said, I I believed I could have it all. I I loved my career. I loved my kids like a great mom. I looked after them and cared for them. And I was a great wife, you know, in in all the ways that counts. And I did it all. And I'm 80 and I'm grateful. But that's not what Petula Clark said. Petula Clark said something very different. And the phony wars are to try to construct a, a persona which um, may or may not be uh, something that you can really achieve. I uh, once found myself saying, I'm, I'm still amazed that I said it, to a colleague about 18, almost 20 years ago. And I said to this minister who was working with me or under me, I said, well, you know, you think of me sometimes, if you would, as a married or as a celibate minister. So I think I said, think of, my, think of me as a celibate priest who happens to be married. 
I actually said that. I can't believe I said it. I'm so embarrassed. Think of me as a, as a, as a celibate priest who happens to be married. Now, what did I think I was saying, that misguided, confused statement? I think I was saying, I know what I was saying to this woman who was the associate rector, wonderful person. I said, I am as committed to the parish and to the long-term good of the parish and our parishioners and to the vision of the parish as I believe it to be. I'm committed to that as I can possibly be and as a single clergyman or priest or minister, as I would prefer to say, oh, room, room. Anyway, I'm as committed to it as a full-time priest slash minister could possibly be. The fact is also, by the way, I am married to Mary and I have three growing sons. Now, I say that, you know, now and I'm just, I mean, I just wince because it's not true. I, I would like it to have been true. What if it had been true? Then I could have been totally in the corner. I could have been the totally the at the beck and call of the parish and totally given over to the work, which is 24-7 if you've ever done it. I mean, it can become a 24-7 thing, just like you were – you know, you if you were the if you were the CEO of, of Lady Clairol or I mean of of of, uh, of the Magnavox Corporation, uh, this can become twenty four seven in the parish. But I happen to have a wife, and she might happen to have a few ideas of your own. You know, by the way, she might happen to have a life of her own. Also, by the way, and I have these three very very precious offspring. Now, is it really <clears throat> at all possible for me to say, think of me as a um, celibate priest who happens to be married no that's not that's a phony war that's the phone that's another phony war it's like patula clark thinks she was superman it proved not to be true i can be a clergyman and work hard and i can be a dad and i can be a a a, 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 a hopefully a decent husband and a good brother and a good son and um, look after myself and diet properly and jog you know to keep in shape physically so i don't die but can i well that's the phony war I doubt it. Certainly in my own life, I couldn't. Uh, something's got to give. So I've talked about uh, phony wars and truth in experience as it relates to falling in love, as uh, Abba so winsomely and brilliantly and universally and enduringly put in their pop hit, Waterloo. And I've talked about um, myself to my great penitential remorse and Pet Clark. And now I'll just use one other example, and then I'm finished, and we're going to conclude, actually. I thought about concluding with Joe Meek's um, um, recording of Petula Clark's song, Oh Daddy, which is a great song uh, and very sentimental and classic Joe Meek, sentimental, late-period Joe Meek. But I decided to go with a song by ABBA, which the lyrics of which I will not uh, foreshadow, but it is also uh, in, in extreme contention with the phony wars, and you've got to listen to this song. The song is called Hey, Hey, Helen, and I owe its prominence, my own thinking, entirely to the intervention of David Zoll, who brought it to, to my attention very wonderfully not so long ago, and I realized that therein was uh, something that was uranium. Now, one final thing. Um, I don't know if you've been following ISIS, and that is the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It's this Islamic jihadist extreme movement that has been... Um, uh, creating such appalling, murderous bloodshed in northern Iraq. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't need to tell you anything more. You just you read the papers too. But um, what is interesting to me about ISIS is that um, you know we've lived over there long enough and thought about this long enough that almost everything that people are saying about it uh, 
is not worth the paper it's written on. Now, I'm no authority, but I am a, an authority on 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 on, on the, the the importance of motivation for people and for young people. Motivation, I understand about that. And um, no one has bothered to sort of write. All they say is that this is a group of psychopaths and they're serial killers and they all ought to be killed and they're just uh, you know they're they're the worst possible form of Islamic extremism and they deserve nothing short of extirpation. All that may be true, but I haven't. I keep wanting people to say, but why are they doing this? I mean, they can't all be psychopaths. It's not the dirty dozen, you know. There, there, there must because people are being attracted. Apparently, thousands of Islamist fighters from all over, including Britain in particular, and even the United States, are being attracted to this group. Why? Why would a young man <clears throat> be attracted to this extreme form of jihadism? Why? And is anyone asking that? Because these, these are, they are human beings, you know, and that may not all be human beings, but some of them are human beings. Why are they being attracted to this? What gives? And um, I, I keep looking, you know, for some kind of real um, sort of diagnosis of what is it. You've got to put yourself in the place of the people that you're dealing with how can you not i mean have you has any other way anywhere i mean force versus force only leads to litigation and finally murder you know the capulets and the montagues but what about reality why at least at least tell me that you make an effort to understand what is it that is drawing them to this extraordinarily focused um and to us inhumane and inhuman barbarous murdering ideology well finally sort of at the very end of a sort of 30,000 word essay in the Manchester Guardian about ISIS in which all the various things are being stated about Mr. Foley and the beheading and all these things there was finally a paragraph I mean after waiting through just you know scrolling down and 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 down that finally seemed to explain it a little bit and this is the paragraph and it's by a British analyst the name is Arabic so I assume he's from the Muslim world but he's a British analyst located in England and this is what he said the message that really motivates people that is the people who are attracted to ISIS I'll start again. The message that really motivates these people, this is in quotations, is it's a way of hitting back at what they perceive to be the U.S. bullying and domination of the Muslim world. They feel impotent when they see the awesome U.S. air and land power, and they see this as a way of hitting back, and that's the principal motivation. Well, finally, you know, a little bit of light. I said, oh, thank God, someone has written. It's the truth. I mean, obviously, because he's bothered, abhorrent as it is, and as its acts are, and as its root ideology is, he's made the effort to try to get inside the heads of people who, from their own point of view, are sincere as hell. You know, they are sincere as they can be from their own point of view. And uh, you have to get into it. You have to understand. It's like uh, Don Johnson in some of the episodes of Miami Vice or that amazing Michael Mann movie Manhunter when the detective gets into the head of the murderer, of the serial murderer, at his own psychological cost, I might add. But the only way to get him finally turns out to be finding some avenue into your own heart that might resonate with what the other guy is thinking or vice versa. And that creates a scenario for capturing the fellow. Well, we're not doing it. We've made them entirely of them us and as a result the only possible thing is to bomb them and um, that may be the case I'm not saying it's not, I'm not taking a stand on that but I was just struck by the clear headedness of the attempt of this guy over in Great Britain to sort of understand why anyone would do this who's not a complete psychopath and they're obviously not all psychopaths now um, the truth, let's finish on the truth, the truth is 
The truth is over against the phony war. I have a grandchild with whom I've spent time. And um, this grandchild, um, let's call it a he and a she, this grandchild seems to be incapable of, of not telling the truth. It's remarkable being with this child. Um, she, he, um, when uh, asked, did you see that? No, grandfather, I didn't. Or I haven't. Or did, did, did you read this? No, I haven't read that. Not saying it in a, 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 a stubborn way or, or in a negative way, but simply telling the truth. We have a grandchild. Uh, he or she is incapable of, 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 of not telling the truth. If they know the answer to a question, uh, where is the pudding? It's in the refrigerator on the second floor. The child's very little. Or um, have you read this part of this book? Or would you like me to read this book? Yes, but did you read this part last night? No. I mean, it, it, the child is remarkably incapable, she or he, of of not telling the truth. And whenever I'm with this child, I sort of feel, you know, this is what this is what Christ meant when he talked about a little child shall lead them, unless she, unless she shall, you shall become as a little child who shall know why enter the kingdom of God, because this child cannot but apparently tell the truth to me. And it's amazing. It's it's like you're you're it's like a cha- like Burton Cummings. You know? It's like I have this little child who's 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 a, who's a four or five three. Let's say let's call it two three four five. I won't signal it which one it is, but let's say a two three four five year old embodiment in a beautiful little child's body. He she a Burton Cummings. This child is unable not to tell the truth. And when I'm with her him, I can honestly say that somehow I'm with God. Because the truth is where God is. Wherever the truth is, there is God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God is where the truth is. First, the truth about me. You know, I'm a poor, lonely, lost individual who's middle-aged and has had a lot of strikes against one. And um, what the heck is happening? And, you know, whatever you may be. Or I've, I've just gotten divorced, and I don't know why he left me. And I thought I was doing everything right. And turns out all the time he was thinking about someone else. And now he's, gone, damn it, gone and done it. And here I am, and I don't even know how to wear my hair. I have no sense of who I am anymore, and I'm completely thrown. I have no life outside of him, and now he, or had no life outside of him, and now he's thrown me over for Miss July 4th, 1999 firecracker of the Middle South, and here I am. What the, you know? Well, that's the beginning. That's the, 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 the truth is the beginning. You can always work. I can work with this grandchild of mine, male or female. I can work with that grandchild. God can work. Reality can work. I can work with, with, with the reality of my lost and suffering and obstructed and unquenched and unfertile and lonely life. But I can't work with a lie. I can't work with an ideology because that's just somebody else's idea of what I ought to be. I ought to be super mom. You know, I ought to be those things, superwoman. And I ought to be, um, ISIS ought to be, young people ought to not be attracted, but but they are, you know. Um, Waterloo, I ought to not give in. But when I'm in love, I, I don't understand myself. I feel like I want to give in. I, I feel like I... I feel like I win when I lose. I mean, the moment I give in to him, I suddenly feel like I'm one with him. You're my everything. You're my everything. You know, I'm, I'm your everything. You're my everything. And we have this, and we don't want to just like Romeo and Juliet. You know, I mean, good gosh. Well, um, union, reality, being what I can be, doing what I can do. This is the group that is, we are faced with. Not, not, not a group that we, we wish we could categorize. And finally, the song by ABBA, which I think it's early period ABBA. I don't know the date, but I'm sure it's not late period ABBA. This is a uh, song about a person who has 
signed her name in blood to being a woman of today. And this is some other voice that is talking to her. Hey, hey, Helen by Abba. Thank you very much.